everyone, I'm Dawn Granskiba and this is Snippets of Literacy. This episode was recorded on Anchor. Dyslexia and Reading Ability, Season 1, Episode 16. Special shout outs this week for all my students at MAC. I'm not going to say the exact name of my school, just to leave a few things private. But special shout outs to you guys who listen to my podcast, especially Monique, Angelique and Melinda. I love you for listening, guys. This episode is a very special one for me. Uh, They all are, that's true. But when I think about dyslexia, I think about someone who's near and dear to me, a special nephew of mine. I'm not going to say his name in order to protect his privacy, but he only got diagnosed as an adult. And so he went through his entire childhood and teenage years thinking that he wasn't quite the same as others. I remember a few times uh, trying to, you know, just sit with him and help him with his reading and how challenging that was and how frustrating that was because... He couldn't get it right. After his diagnosis, his condition got a name and it became easier for him to navigate through life now that he knew what was wrong with him. And I say wrong, quote unquote wrong, because that's the thing. Nothing was wrong with him at all. But indeed, he had a condition that affected his ability to break down sounds So, of course, he had a problem with learning how to read um, well. Now that you know why this topic, dyslexia and reading ability, is so important to me, help me to welcome a very special woman to tell us more. Hello, welcome, welcome to Snippets of Literacy podcast. You are my first international guest, so I'm really, really proud to welcome you. Thank Thank you so much for agreeing. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Oh, the honor is totally on my side. But yeah, I want to jump right in and for you to maybe uh, introduce yourself to our Mm -hmm. listeners. Yeah, so um, my name is Yunes, and I was uh, born and raised in the island of Puerto Rico, which is in the Caribbean. Um, yes. I grew up there, and I went to the United States to pursue my um, college education, and that's where I met my husband, and then we had our first child there, and eventually we migrated to New Zealand in 2014. Oh, right. Lovely. So is your husband Kiwi then? No, actually, he's German. So we're, we just wanted to um, experience Kiwi lifestyle and we loved it. So we have stayed so far. Oh, I'm sure you would. I loved it. I've been there as well. And I think it's beautiful. My best friend who introduced us. So huge shout Mm -hmm. out to Vinette. Of course, she, she lives in New Zealand as well. Awesome. Yeah. So you so did your teaching career start in New Zealand or back in Puerto Rico? So actually, um, I am a nurse by training. So I have a doctorate degree in nursing. 
Um, mm. I have been a nurse for almost 20 years. And in the States, I was a, a nurse practitioner. My okay. um, Once I got my doctorate degree, I actually started um, teaching tertiary level. So I taught um, nursing school students at that point um, in undergraduate and graduate level. And um, it's actually my involvement with dyslexia started when my daughter um, started having symptoms of dyslexia um, okay. when she entered school. Um, because of my academic background, and obviously, I guess they figure I know how to learn, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, was, um, I was enrolled, I was accepted into the Australia Dyslexia Association Institute for Multisensory Language Instruction in oh, 2017. Wow. And I completed um, a certificate as a dyslexia specialist. And um, I am an associate, a professional associate member of the Australia Dyslexia Association. So that's my, how, you know, I ended up um, knowing about dyslexia, um, being able to teach my own child um, structural literacy. And, you know, that's how I, that's how I got started. Wow, that is a fascinating story. That is amazing. You know, I think it is it is the best way, right? I'm, I don't want the men out there to feel badly, but women know best, and <laughs> that goes to show that when we when we see a problem, we just try to fix it. And that is an amazing, amazing story. Thank you for sharing. So that's how you became interested in the area of dyslexia. So do you work in that area full time, or just with the Australian Association from time to time? So at the moment, what I what I have tutored, so I'm not a, I do not have a teaching license per se, oh. but I but I am able to tutor on a private okay. basis, and I have tutored um, other dyslexic students, um, and mostly the extent of my teaching at the moment is um, teaching my own children. As uh, okay. as my daughter has dyslexia, and my son has. Um, ADHD and highly suspected that he has dyslexia. He's a bit young, so I haven't had him mm-hmm. assessed, but I um, I highly suspect that he has it okay. as well. So that's mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing. That's yeah. In addition to so, my work. Wow. So is there a, so is there a chance that you'll move over? You come to the dark side of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know that's something that um, because of my personal. Um, connection to dyslexia and because I have been an educator in the past mm-hmm. um, for you know for nurses um, okay. you know, that I, I have passion for um, yes. I also have a career in nursing so um, it's something that once I'm done um, homeschooling my children and placing them back in the in the school system then that is something that I will definitely consider, but at the moment, just maintaining my career and being able yes. to, um, you know, to teach my my own children and homeschool them, mm-hmm. um, that has me quite busy. You know what? They're so lucky to have you. I think, and I'm sure you'll say that you too. But it's just some. It's just fantastic to hear that parents out there can become qualified because really we are the first and best teachers of our children, especially when they have special needs. So that I really believe that. 
um, because we'll have the time and patience. You know, it's just us children, not a class full of 30 kids. So I think, you know, congratulations and I wish you all the best as you continue on that journey. So I hope that our talk today as well will help some others who might be struggling. So can you explain to our listeners exactly what dyslexia is, how you understand it? You know, what does it mean? Is it something uh, like a virus that you can catch or what is this dyslexia? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Um, so dyslexia is more like a syndrome of symptoms. Um, if you allow me to use a little bit of medical language here, mm-hmm. um, so you have a cluster of symptoms that reflect a difficulty with processing written text. Right. However, this difficulty can oftentimes present itself in sharp contrast to the intellectual abilities that you see your child clearly has or your student clearly Mm -hmm. has. Um, So it's a discrepancy between literacy Mm -hmm. skills and intellectual ability. Um, So far, um, what we know, the prevailing theory of dyslexia is what it's called a phonological deficit model. Now, if you allow me a little bit to explain a little bit the role of theory in scientific inquiry that may actually help build the layers of why we say that we are confident that this is the an, an actual accurate way of understanding dyslexia. So mm-hmm. scientists, when they see observations, when they see symptoms, they come up with theories of what they think um, mm-hmm. might be the rationale be, be, you know, underneath the symptomatology, if you would say. Right. And once that theory is elaborated, then multiple people over time, multiple researchers over time start conducting research to test whether or not that theory is valid, whether or not the observations actually match what we think dyslexia is. And so at this point, we have close to 100 years of research that was first Mm -hmm. noted to be in stroke patients and eventually was found that this similar characteristics and similar symptoms was found were found to be amongst students um, right. so that's when we we enter into understanding that dyslexia is really a neurologic characteristic um, and in that model what we have noted what multiple researchers have noted is that individuals who have dyslexia have a insensitivity to the sound structure of word oral language. So they right. cannot parse out the most discrete um, sounds in our oral right. language. And therefore, when you go to attach symbols such as an alphabet mm-hmm. to that sound, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to them because developmentally, mm-hmm. they have less connectivity in areas of the brain that would enable right. them to manipulate sounds and to parse them out, to blend them and segment segment them well enough. So that is what it's called the phonological deficit theory. And that is the prevailing theory of dyslexia. So it's not a virus. It's not something, it's actually a a neurologic characteristic that Mm -hmm. has a very strong pattern of heritability. So it's inherited. So it is genetic, it's a genetic condition then? Correct. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Um, 
dyslexia. So, can I just ask you real quick? So, it is a genetic condition that you you mentioned that it affects the way that the brain processes um, the written language. Is it only the written language, or is it also the spoken language? So, can you be, you know, let's say verbally? So, the initial the initial deficit um, is in processing the sounds in oral language. So they are able to hear words well. They don't have a they don't have a problem with hearing words. Mm-hmm. But in the way that their brain processes those mm-hmm. words, it's difficult for them to parse out that words are made out, out of even more basic sounds, sounds or phonemes. So right. that is the true deficit. We don't have a reading brain. We have a brain that's wired for oral language. What we do when we are undergoing the process of reading is that we are very quickly um, actually mapping out those symbols and converting them into sounds in our brain. That is what the brain does. That is what every brain does, whether or not there is a dyslexic brain. So, um, wow, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, please um, keep going. I'm just really fascinated by what you're saying. Yeah. So, we have a situation in which when a brain cannot have a, an insensitivity or they lack insight into the phoneme structure of words, then attaching alphabet letters to those sounds become a modeled, unclear, confusing mm-hmm. experience. Now, we know that... Uh, so... so- what what this phoneme for people let's say you know parents at home who are not sure so i will so the deficits are in ability to segment sound so for example a child that has a limitation or an insensitivity to the sound structure of words will find it really difficult to understand rhymes so you okay. would, you would ask them does map and Pot rhyme and they'll tell you yes they rhyme okay. whereas mm-hmm. a child that has a natural insight and sensitivity and does not have dyslexia because they have been exposed to oral language since birth they would mm-hmm. actually they would have already internalized those patterns in oral speech and they will be able to tell you yeah you right. know map mm-hmm. and sock don't rhyme right so an individual a child that has difficulty with phonological processing or phonologic awareness, which is the umbrella term for those skills, Mm -hmm. um, would have difficulty clapping syllables. So there are certain certain skills that we take for granted, very basic skills that we take for granted because they're passed down to us through our exposure to oral language since birth. And our brain is wired for to be Mm -hmm. set, to pick up patterns and to roll with them. But a but an individual, a child with dyslexia, does not have that natural sensitivity to this to the sound structure of spoken language, and that's where they struggle. So, for example, I had um, I spoken to one of our preschool teachers for my son, and I and she had mentioned to me that she noticed that some kids get clapping syllables while others don't. Or some kids are able to parse out the first sound in a word or the last sound in a word or the right. middle sound without difficulties where others don't. And she's not sure why that is. 
and I explain to her that's because they probably have a phonological awareness um, limitation. So these these patterns can be picked up really early on, as early as four years old. Right. Um, okay, and, as early as four years yes, old. Okay, because yes. that was one of the questions I was going to ask mm-hmm. you. And you've just mentioned two things that I will, we will come back to it, but just so I don't forget, because you mentioned that you spoke with a kindergarten teacher that that teacher was asking you because she knew about your expertise i suppose so then my question from that is are we being trained as teachers well enough to recognize those issues with phonology you know um and 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 are we able to teach uh students who have dyslexia and even those who don't are we able to recognize when there's an issue so all of those questions are bubbling inside of me but let me go back to you so how did you recognize that your child was dyslexic and is that the right way to say it or has dyslexia or you know is that an is it a negative way of saying saying that um I'm not sensitive about that. Some some individuals may feel that, for example, calling somebody a diabetic or a dyslexic may narrow their identity to a label. Um, right. So it it really depends on how you feel about it. But but yes, you would if you want to be um, uh, what I would say uh, clear about it. You would say somebody has dyslexia rather okay. than someone is dyslexic. But I I, personal, I personally don't you know. Don't, don't mind. <laughs> I don't take offense no. to that. Um, so when, because I'm a nurse, I think I I have been trained to to observe. You know, that's what right. that's what we're trained mm-hmm. to do to observe. Um, not everybody comes to you to tell you I have X Y C. Actually, you are trained to observe and he, and listen, so that you can help somebody establish a problem list and see how you can help them with that problem list. So when I started um, helping my daughter, there were certain things early on that started to um, confuse me about the way that she she started approaching um, written text. So one of those things was, um, first of all, she would get really stressed when it came time to do our at-home time, you know, reading. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was... Um, unusual for her I didn't understand that um, and then I think the other aspect of it is that because my first language is in Spanish and the way that I was taught Spanish being a highly phonetic language right I, I was taught to sound out sounds you blend the sounds and you segment the sounds to be able to spell right. so I found confusing that my daughter was not reading in that manner that oftentimes she would know how to read one word in one page and you would turn the the, the page and she would not recognize the word. Um, right. The other um, interesting characteristic I noticed is that she would actually look at the pictures, understand kind of the narrative arc of the story, and then she would actually completely transpose words while reading mm-hmm. those, 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 those books. And that started to, you know, I started wondering, what is this all about? She's not reading yeah. like I read. She's not reading right. like my brain reads. So that was the right. initial, the initial, what that, that was the first, you know, coming year one and seeing, noticing her brain doesn't read the same way my brain reads. Why is that? Right. So issues with sequencing, word recognition, 
maybe even letter recognition, mm-hmm. right? Jump mm-hmm. letters. Okay, so those are signs that any parent can see initially. Do you think that, because you mentioned that was when she was going into year one, was it? Am I right? Mm-hmm. So, so what, what we say, what is understood to be evidence-based practice is that a student, when they come into year one, um, should be taught um, for six months evidence-based instruction. And evidence-based instruction at that point means that they are being taught phonemic awareness skills. So they would be given activities and games that highlights or heightens their sensitivity to the sound structure of words. And then the other part of evidence-based instruction, according to research, is alphabet recognition. So when a student comes into kindergarten or year one, um, you would expect that the first six months, they're working through their alphabet recognition and phonemic awareness skills. After six months, if that student is starting to struggle, then they ought to be assessed for phonological awareness skills or phonemic awareness skills. Mm. And if those are found to be poor, then they should there should be some sort of intervention to shore up weaknesses in those areas because we know that phonologic awareness and phonemic awareness skills are skills that are trainable. The brain can learn them. And by doing so, you are able to not necessarily wait until a child is way behind. When a student enters year one, the first task that they should be um, walked through is phonemic awareness skills. And phonemic awareness includes um, identifying first sound of, of words, second, mm-hmm. last sound, blending sounds together, segmenting sounds to get segmenting sounds apart. So you work through that and at the same time you teach what is understood in in education as phonics meaning alphabet recognition and the sound symbol correspondences after six months of evidence-based instruction if a child is not progressing in their literacy skills then they ought to be assessed for their the strength of their phonologic awareness skills and And who is they're found to be I'm sorry, who is best at doing this assessment? The classroom teachers the or teacher. college? The, the teacher. classroom teachers, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And there are multiple assessments out there that can be used, easy assessments. Um, it doesn't take a long time. Um, but, if, but if those assessments are done, then it would enable the teacher to identify early on children who are at risk of reading failure. Mm-hmm. Um, the current model that the the current model and the model that we have had for a long time is that we enable children time to hopefully catch up on their own or we enable time for them to develop those skills without intervening and the average age Hmm. a student is diagnosed with a reading difficulty is nine to ten years old right so there's a lot of weight lost time in that window where we enable the child to fail before we recognize the need to provide Mm -hmm. interventions that would help the the student. And and Mm -hmm. we know now that 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 shouldn't be so 
We know that we can recognize as early as four years old if a child has phonemic or phonological awareness difficulties. We know that phonemic awareness skills develop across time, but they are trainable. And we know that after six months of evidence-based instruction that will involve phonemic awareness training and alphabet recognition training, that a child should be able to get started in a good position. And if they don't, then you can intervene early to shore up those deficits in phonemic awareness and provide a little bit more support rather than allowing the student to become disabled. Right. And that's the issue. It's exactly the right. Time, the time, the lag between allowing a child the space to grow and develop. Um, mm-hmm. And the time to intervene. <laughs> the time to intervene is too long. And too long. from from neurologic you know, research, we know that that window of time from the time of birth until 10 years old, these are critical brain brain developmental windows where Mm -hmm. the brain is extremely plastic. And so after 10 years old, it's not that you cannot learn. We all can learn through life. Our neuroplasticity is across lifetime, but it makes it harder. Absolutely. And a child that's already behind at 10 years old, we know from research that they'll be behind in high school. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, that is such an eye opener for me. And I I do work in this space. So, of course, I know some of this. But what would you say um, just with from your interaction with others? Do you think that as teachers or let's say the teachers you've met, do you think they are sufficiently trained to, um, to my, work? I, I initially started working with my children in the school system and trying to work with the with their educators. And I honestly um, feel a lot of sympathy for the position that the teachers are in because early on in trying, to, in trying <laughs> to understand what's going on here, I... Mm-hmm. It, it didn't take me long, and being a tertiary level educator, right. you, um, I understood very early on that teachers are not being done justice. They're not being no. prepared in pre-service train training, right. and that is not their responsibility. That is the re- responsibility of, of the their, of the universities and the colleges mm-hmm. who train them. Absolutely. And so I I very I identified that early. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that once teachers um, are put out for service, if you have not given them those skills, if you have not given them the evidence of how any brain reads, and if you have not given them the pedagogy of how do you deliver literacy skills, then then the onus is on them as good professionals to get outside training that costs money, and it's time consuming exactly. and and we know that our teachers are busy we know they're they're stretched thin we know that we know that they're having to cope with yes. you know everything that's going on in society ends up in a school so i think that that they're not being done justice they're not being prepared enough and then they're being expected to shore up those gaps on their own time and with their own money and that's not that's not a strategy 
that's not no. a strategy well thank you so much Eunice for saying it in the way that you have because you know as a teacher myself we do get blamed for a lot of things but as you've rightly put it it sometimes it's not our fault <laughs> you know we don't train ourselves to become teachers of course we do have a responsibility to keep up you know to maintain our training and to develop ourselves and and of course you know appreciate advancement so obviously we are we are supposed to be reading the research and and doing our best but it does start right at the beginning that we need the adequate training and for for parents and other stakeholders to realize as well that teachers do have a lot that we have to cope with every day so when we have parents like you so passionate you know and who who can teach us a thing or two i i would say that most of us would be so welcoming of that because we don't we don't know everything we can't know everything at best in 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 as a university in australia if you do a teacher degree you know it is you might have a one unit on on special education under which dyslexia will come right just as a little nugget mm-hmm. so it's impossible for us to be experts in all of these areas so thank you for sharing that i think there is a there is another challenge don um and that is the multidisciplinary nature of reading science yes and and so and i mean in the in our field in nursing and medicine we struggle to get the right people at the table all of the stakeholders from multiple disciplines so that we can actually make uh, research finding viable at the bedside it takes about 17 years for that to happen oh look at that mm. um, that's in medicine so in education you have a similar problem in which reading the science of reading is a multidisciplinary field yes you is. have neuroscience you have education um, mm-hmm. scientists you you know you you have um, uh, a lot of people doing research on yes. this issue and it becomes difficult for a teacher to be the the person who has not only the ability to consume research yes that that's the other challenge it's a challenge yes. for nurses as well. you need to have the know-how of how do you interpret research and how yes. does it fit Yes. You know, is it is this a is this evidence based? Is this reliable? What is the bias in this piece of research? Um, let alone the expectation that you are supposed to know um, the broad world of research that's going on out there for reading, which is yes. multidisciplinary. It's it's Absolutely. unbelievable. Um, it's it's very vast. It's a vast field. It um, is, mm-hmm. and it includes linguistics. It includes, I mean, it includes so much. Yes. So I, I just don't think that the role of teachers is to make up for all of no. that. Um, I do think that it would be helpful if, in pre-service training, the academics have sorted out what is the science, what is supported, where is the bias, and then give that to you in pre-service right. training. So that then you can, you know, uh, we Mm -hmm. have a similar problem in nursing and teaching them how to use research. And um, we have merged from research utilization to evidence-based practice. And all of of that requires knowledge of science, knowledge of statistics. You know, it's difficult. It is. It is very challenging. It is indeed. And, you know, I myself am a researcher. 
I'm also doing uh, I'm, I'm doing my PhD in literacy and leadership mm-hmm. and it's just so broad I could just spend my days reading just the you know the mm-hmm. research not never just just on consumption okay synthesize and consolidate exactly. <laughs> there's so much out there you know and 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 teaching is trial and error as well but we're not expected to fail at all so there was the, the added pressure that we have. But as we wind down, because we are um, heading to the 30-minute mark, mm-hmm. what strategies have uh, you used that you find especially useful, helpful for parents mm-hmm. and maybe a couple for teachers when working with a child with dyslexia? Um, yeah, I think that um, just for the sake of time, I would say that from a parenting perspective, or even from an education, an educator perspective, um, we need we need to understand that dyslexia is not a it does not involve an intellectual limitation. Um, right. That's the first thing um, that we need to understand, so that mm-hmm. we can actually advocate with the for the potential of the individual. Yes. Um, so, but most parents, most of us parents, we know our kids are bright. We just don't know why they can't read. Um, the next, the next um, step would be finding sources that would that f- sources that would enable you to provide structured literacy to the child. Um, now, I don't know how aware you are about structured literacy or multisensory structured literacy, but mm-hmm. that is what we in dyslexia consider the gold standard. For, for learning, for learning reading for dyslexics. So tell us a I, little bit about it. <laughs> what does that look like? Uh, structured literacy is pretty much an education pedagogy in which you use um, a scope and sequence of skills that build upon one another, that is cumulative mm-hmm. and systematic. Now, um, explicit, I guess, right? And it is explicit. We don't leave. Um, we don't leave skills. We don't leave them to be learned implicitly. We make those patterns explicit to the child. Right. And then the other aspect of is the multisensory aspect, and that yes. means that the way that we elicit responses from our students will encompass three sensory channels, because we know that when we enlist three sensory channels then our brain is receiving that input through multiple channels, meaning auditory, visual, yeah. and kinesthetic. And so it does help with memory retention. Yes. So it, it looks fancy, it sounds fancy, but no. it's not. Yes, um, it's, it's beautiful. It supports um, some research that I did oof, maybe um, 13 years ago on the multisensory approach mm-hmm. to to uh, teaching children with uh, dyslexia. So I totally and completely agree with you. Is that what has been done in New Zealand? Is that the approach in New Zealand? Um, or is in, it- it's, it's a little bit modeled, but right now we have uh, good advocates for structured multisensory um, instruction um, in, in New Zealand. We have Carla McNeil, we have that has been working with Jody Clemens. Jody Clemens is the president of the Australia Dyslexia Association, mm. and she trained me. She trained Carla. She trained many um, literacy specialists and individuals that are so right now on the ground in New Zealand advocating with ministry 
um, for structured literacy. And as a witness of to the work and effort that those individuals have put in into advocacy, we now can say that the Ministry of Education um, have put out a kitty for for, wow. dyslex- for dyslexia that is pretty much based on structured literacy. And you can find that in the Ministry of Education. I'm sure that would benefit every single child. That is correct. I mean, it is something worth worth looking into. Wow. Thank you so much. Look, we could keep talking. This topic is obviously very big, mm-hmm. but it's a snippets of literacy. So we have to end. Mm-hmm. But thank you so, so very much for coming on and, and talking us through um, what dyslexia is, how to recognize it and, you know, for sharing your passion. And I hope that anyone out there listening will, you know, feel motivated by your story because it is a phenomenal one. And so just to know parents that you can, you can help your child um, yes. to, to live a fulfilled life. You know, there are lots of famous people uh, with mm-hmm. dyslexia, like Richard Branson, right? Mm-hmm. He's a mm-hmm. billionaire, I suppose. Uh, so you can have, a, 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 you can, your child can live a fulfilled life but just don't hide it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I think um, if we had more time, we could spend 20 hours talking. But I think uh, a big issue with dyslexia is shame. Um, Shame in the family and shame in the person. Now, shame is something that is a human condition. And we all can do better in striving to rid ourselves of shame. But unfortunately, it really affects our families of you know individuals who have dyslexia and dyslexic individuals themselves so Mm -hmm. it's a huge emotional and psychological um, obstacle to be Mm -hmm. able to reach potential we must rid ourselves of shame absolutely thank you i think we will end on that very positive note we must rid ourselves ourselves of shame thank you so much eunice for joining me on snippets of literacy thank you so much for having me listening to snippets of literacy with Dawn Grant Skiba. I love you for listening.